So good morning, everyone, and welcome. For those of you who are um, perhaps new here, my name is Tom. I'm one of the elders here at Westlake, and I'm filling in for uh, our pastor, Martin Slack, who is uh, in the UK for the weekend. So today we're continuing our series in the book of 1 Peter. And before I consider today's passage that Mopi read a few minutes ago, I'd, I'd like to pose a simple question to you. And this is congregational participation in the message here. What are some of the ways that you have been or can be a witness for Christ with your non-Christian friends, neighbors, or work colleagues? What are, the, what are some of those ways that you have or could be? I'm used to standing up in front, in front of a bunch of students, so I could wait for responses. Francois, one of, our, one of our real evangelists in the congregation. What are some of the ways, Francois, that... To react differently. Okay, to react differently. Others? Yeah. yeah to, love. to love them. Any other suggestions? I, I didn't hear. To offer prayer, okay. You might, you might uh, think about inviting them to, uh, to, an, uh, to a Christianity explored course, perhaps, that, that you're leading in your neighborhood, like uh, Karen Zindler does, or maybe invite them to uh, a talk at Mission Week on campus or a Bible study that happens at your school. But there's one suggestion that I didn't expect to hear um, and you wouldn't perhaps normally think of it. One way we could be a witness, and this is, gets along the lines that Francois said, react differently. We can be a witness for Christ by the way we suffer. It wouldn't be the first thing that came to your mind, would it? The hope that you display in suffering, particularly suffering that you don't deserve. There are different kinds of suffering, aren't there? There's one that one you would call deserved suffering. That is, difficulties that result from sinful or illegal action. A few weeks ago, there was an article in, in the news about the former tennis great, Boris Becker, who was sentenced to two and a half years in prison for hiding two and a half million pounds um, uh, worth of his assets to be able to avoid paying debts. And uh, upon being released, after serving eight months of his sentence, he said in an interview, whoever says that prison life isn't hard and isn't difficult, I think is lying. I was surrounded by murderers, by drug dealers, by rapists, by people smugglers, by dangerous criminals. You fight every day for survival. He, he was clearly suffering. But he suffered as a direct result of his actions. It, he deserved it. Then there's my, what one might call undeserved suffering. Things, difficult things that happen for, for no apparent reason. You've been a faithful follower of Jesus, served him for most of your life. You go to the doctor for a routine checkup and find that you've been diagnosed with cancer. And then there's a particular type of undeserved suffering that one might call unjust suffering. That is suffering for doing what is right. For example, you're asked to do something illegal at your job. As a Christian, you know it's wrong, 
So you refuse, and as a result, you're fired, and you find yourself in difficult financial, uh, uh, significant financial difficulties. Now, while today's passage is focused on unjust suffering, I think its message is generally applicable to all types of undeserved suffering. How one deals with undeserved suffering, particularly when it's unjust, will mark you out as a Christian. You'll stand out from the world and in doing so, open up opportunities to witness for Christ. Today's passage is 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please open them and and turn there. Let, Let me first put this passage in context of Peter's entire letter. It's clear, to the, it's clear that the Christians to whom Peter is writing are undergoing, uh, and, and they were mostly Gentiles, they were undergoing suffering. At the point at which he wrote, it probably wasn't yet the kind of empire-wide suffering um, that came a few years later, but more the everyday charges that, brought, that were brought against uh, Christians because of their faith. And, and you could see this sprinkled throughout the letter. For example, in chapter two, verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Or four, verse 12. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you. Or verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. Or in chapter five. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world and after you have suffered a little while. It's not surprising then that one of the major themes in Peter's letter is hope in the midst of suffering. So let's now dive into uh, today's passage. Verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? I think it's fair to say that there's a general agreement in society about what is good. In Western society, this is due largely in part about the, uh, by the, uh, to the profound effect that Christianity has had on its laws and its morals. However, there's also an innate sense of morality that every human being possesses, having been created in God's image. The Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Now, this doesn't mean that there aren't gross perversions that develop over time. And as we look at our society today, it seems to be drifting more and more away from biblical morality. But in general, there remains an innate sense of what is good. And so, What Peter writes here is a general statement. If you're zealous for doing good, who will harm you? Most people will recognize good for what it is and would have no reason to harm you for for doing it. But as we know, this is not absolute, particularly in the case of Christians. As the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Christians will be persecuted for doing what is right. I don't think we need to seek persecution, but for some, it will come. 
And this leads Peter to write in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. But even if, although it might not be common, it may happen. It is sometimes God's will that we suffer for doing good. Jump down to verse 17 for a moment. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Suffering for doing evil is just getting what we deserve. But suffering for doing good is undeserved and unjust. Now, why would God allow Christians to suffer unjustly? Peter goes on in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Doesn't that sound strange? How on earth would one be blessed by suffering when you don't deserve it? Now, while, as I said before, while Peter is particularly addressing those who are suffering unjustly because of one's faith, I think what he says can be equally applied to the more general case of undeserved suffering. That is, people who are simply suffering for what appears to be no good reason. Now, it would be flippant for me to stand up here and tell those of you who may be experiencing severe suffering that you will be blessed. It, it might not seem particularly comforting. In general, one doesn't want to go around to those who are suffering saying, oh, what a blessing this will be for you. But what I want to say to you this morning comes from people from within this church who are undergoing severe suffering. God's desire for his people has always been that they trust him completely, put their hope fully in him and delight in him. This is what glorifies God's the most, God the most, and this is the place in which we will be most fully blessed. When we're suffering undeservedly or unjustly, if this leads to us putting our hope more fully in him, then we will indeed be blessed. Nine years ago, my wife Karen was diagnosed with leukemia. This came as a total surprise to us as she showed no symptoms. After a series of blood tests and finding out that her white cell count was low, her doctor suggested that she have a bone marrow biopsy just in case. The results of the biopsy showed that 80% of her bone marrow cells were diseased. And the day after she received the diagnosis, she was in the shoe of receiving chemotherapy. At times, the chemo was so strong that the skin was peeling off her hands. After spending a total of about four months in the hospital, she was given a stem cell transplant. She had to remain largely isolated for several years because of her compromised immune system. It was interesting to see the reaction of hospital staff to Karen as she was dealing with the most difficult periods of heavy chemotherapy. They clearly saw the difference from their typical patients, and on several occasions, it gave her the opportunity to share her faith. One of the hospital staff has since sent to her people to counsel who are about to go through the same procedure. Now, shortly after Karen was beginning to get back into circulation, Frank Grota, Grota uh, Jill's husband and Ido's father, was battling cancer and was in and out of the hospital. I remember well going to visit him, during which time we had long conversations 
about life and death. It was clear that he and Karen had a shared experience of feeling totally helpless in themselves and being forced to trust Christ in a new way. While it might be difficult for someone looking from the outside to understand, both of them said that they were grateful for the way God had used their suffering to deepen their faith. They considered themselves blessed, even though those blessings came at a great cost. While how we, how we as Christians respond to undeserved suffering will mark us out and provide a witness for Christ, Peter is specifically addressing here the case of suffering for righteousness sake or for the sake of the gospel where one is being persecuted for being a Christian. And in this case, there is a sense in which one is emulating Christ and by doing so, one could perhaps realize in a new way the depth, of, uh, the depth of what he has done for us, which in itself is a blessing. Peter addresses this later in his letter, and so I'll leave that for Martin to expand upon. Now, having raised the possibility that his readers might suffer unjustly, Peter goes on then to describe how one should respond to it. Verses 14 and 15. He says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Instead of fearing those who are causing your suffering, we're to honor Christ the Lord in our hearts as holy. Now, when one becomes a Christian, what, what is it that really happens? There's a lot that happens, but what is it that we really profess? The Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Romans um, in chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. There are two parts to this, confessing him as Lord and believing that God raised him from the dead. In the early church, one could stand up in a public arena and shout, Jesus is God. This wouldn't, this wouldn't offend anybody. The Romans and the Greeks believed in many gods. But confessing Jesus as Lord was a dangerous thing to do. For the Romans, there was only one Lord, and that was Caesar. Anything else was considered treason. This is the very thing that would cause someone to be persecuted. Peter is saying, don't be afraid of them. Stand resolute in your heart to honor Jesus Christ as Lord, even in the face of persecution. Now, what does that mean to honor him as Lord? means to worship him, to put all the ambitions of our lives before him. It means to submit to his will. Now, let me just stop here and pose the question to you. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Often we're drawn to Christ, uh, we're drawn by Christ's love for us, his having died on the cross to pay for our sins and make a way for us to be reconciled to God. But do we really come to him as our Lord? Do we seek his will for our lives? Do we make his priorities our priorities? Or is Jesus just useful to take away our sins and get us to heaven? Rather than being afraid of those persecuting us, we're to honor Christ by trusting him, not only as our savior, but also as our Lord. 
Now, Peter goes on to explain that as we suffer, we should do so differently from the world around us because of the hope that we have. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord is holy, Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. The word hope in common usage is often uh, used to mean crossing your fingers um, that some desired outcome will be achieved. However, that's not the way it's used in scripture. Hope is basically that part of faith that focuses on the future. John Piper has said it in this way, biblical hope is biblical faith in the future tense. Faith is acting now on the basis of what he has done in the past. Hope is looking forward in faith to what he has promised for the future. And scripture has a lot to say about our hope as Christians, particularly in the midst of suffering. And I'd like just to mention five aspects of our Christian hope that are particularly pertinent in the midst of unjust just suffering. There's certainly many more, but I'm just, I've just uh, chosen five of them. First, the Lord Jesus will one day be recognized and worshiped as Lord. While Peter tells us to honor Jesus as Lord in our hearts, one day the entire world will confess him as Lord and bow to him, including those who are unjustly causing Christians to suffer. Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The entire earth, the entire universe will recognize and worship Christ is Lord. Second, our present suffering is transient and not to be compared to the glory that awaits us. Though we may be suffering now, the suffer suffering is only momentary in the light of eternity. The Apostle Paul, someone who is well acquainted with suffering, wrote the following in his second letter to the Corinthians. So we do not lose heart Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen are transient, but the things, the things are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And then in his letter to the Romans, he writes, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. Third, our hope is a living hope that will last forever. In the first chapter of Peter's letter, he writes, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our hope is in a living Savior, Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead. Peter says that this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, unlike anything we might hope for in this present life. Fourth, eternal life will be a personal relationship with the living God. Hear the words of Jesus himself recorded by the Apostle John. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom, you've have, whom you have sent. Eternal life will consist of a relationship with him who loved us so much that he gave his life for us. And this is something that's really difficult to grasp in its fullness. The, the Bible is clear that the death of Christ on the cross was part of God's plan from the very beginning. It's only on the cross that we come to understand how a God can be infinitely holy and infinitely loving at the same time. The cross is how God chose to reveal to us his very nature. And this is the same God with whom we will spend eternity. Now, in addition, for me as a scientist, having a personal relationship with the glorious and all-powerful maker of the universe and all of its amazing complexity will simply blow my mind. It will take an eternity to plumb the depths of his wisdom reflected in his creation and learn the mystery of how it all works. Fifth and finally, we shall have unobscured access to his glory and will become like him. The Apostle, Paul, uh, Apostle John wrote in his letter, his first letter, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We will have an unobscured view of God's glory. In the book of Exodus, when Moses asked to see God's glory as reassurance that, he will go, that, that God will go with him, God puts him in the cleft of a rock and allows him only a glimpse of his glory as he passes by. Because sinful man cannot see the face of God and live. However, because of what Jesus has done for us, we shall see God's glory face to face. And not only that, but we will, be, we will also share in that glory because we will be like him. These are some of the reasons we have hope and should not be afraid or troubled when we suffer undeservedly, particularly when persecuted for righteousness sake. Now, while our hope can enable us to bear under suffering, how or why we do this might not always be apparent to, to those around us. Let's look back at, at verse 15. The second half uh, of, of that verse says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. When a Christian is suffering, an unbeliever may ask why the response is so different from the way the world react, would react. And Peter says, we should be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. We need to be able and ready to explain why we're so different, why we have such hope, why we are a Christian. The word translated defense here, it's a Greek word, apologia, 
from which we get the English word apologetics. It doesn't mean apology, that is to say one is sorry, but rather a defense of the type that might be presented in court. Now, seeing how this word is used elsewhere in the scripture can help us get a sense for this. When the apostle Paul returned to Jerusalem and was arrested in the temple and was being brought in, he asked if he could speak to the crowd. And he said, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. When Paul was imprisoned, Festus, the governor of Judea, presented the case against him to King Agrippa, saying, it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So the sense of the word here is to give a legal defense as in, as in a courtroom. We're to make a reasonable, logical response when asked, why we have such hope. It shouldn't be a theological discourse or an emotional response. Explaining why we have hope is different than describing the hope itself. It's an explanation of what Christ has done and why we believe it. Now, there are many different reasons why you yourself might have come to believe the gospel. It could be that you were brought up in a Christian home, taught the Bible, and always just accepted it. It could be for emotional reasons. Upon hearing the gospel, you were so overwhelmed by the love of Christ and the forgiveness of your sins. It could be that you witnessed the life change of a friend after they became a Christian, or you observed how a Christian friend dealt with suffering. However, no matter how we first came to believe, the reason we should believe something is because it's true. Peter's exhortation to be ready to give a defense of the hope that is in us is a call to explain why we think that which we believe about Jesus is true. What is the objective evidence that would testify to the truth of what we believe? The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, explains what the basis of their faith should be. He wrote, now I'd re I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day accordance with this, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And then in verse 14, Paul goes on, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is, our, is your faith. The basis of our faith is the historical fact that Christ rose from the dead. We should know the evidence for the resurrection of Christ, as this should be the cornerstone of why we believe. When I first became a Christian during my student years, one of the books that was considered required reading was Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict, which lays out in great detail the evidence for why we should believe in the gospel. And that book, that was a long time ago, but that book has been updated many times since. Another time-honored book is Know Why You Believe by Paul Little. These are classics that help further establish you in your faith and help you to be prepared to make defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now finally, 
Peter tells us something about the manner in which we should give a defense. He says in verses 15 and 16, Yet do it with great gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ might be put to shame. When we're asked to give a defense of our hope, we're to do it with gentleness and respect, in contrast to those who revile your good behavior, so they might be put to shame. In a sense, we're to follow the example of how Jesus responded to unjust suffering when he was tried and crucified. There's one important difference, however, in the context of today's passage. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. As Jesus hung on the cross, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. What irony. Although they meant it as a derision, what they said was absolutely true, even prophetic. It was in choosing not to save himself that Jesus saved others. Jesus chose not to give a defense. He left that for us to do. In Peter's words, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Let's pray.